and welcome to episode 929 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by our Patreon supporters and the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined as always by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Ben, hey. Hi. How are you? I'm okay. I did not say that I am Ben Lindbergh of 538 today, although technically I suppose that's still true for a few more hours. But as you may have seen elsewhere, I have a new job. Two years ago, I signed a contract with Grantland. Today, that deal is ending. And as of tomorrow, I will work for The Ringer, which is the new website started by Bill Simmons and a bunch of former Grantland staffers, including my excellent editor, Mallory Rubin. For those of you who haven't been reading The Ringer, it's a sports and culture and tech site. You can find it at theringer.com. I'll be writing about baseball and also about other things. I'll be doing some podcast stuff too. To start, I will be hosting The Ringer MLB podcast, which you can all subscribe to in the usual places. Probably pretty predictable. I know I've had a few Twitter eggs ask me if I would be going there or when I would be going there. So now you know. However, that does not mean that Effectively Wild is ending. Those of you who've followed us as I've moved from Baseball Prospectus to Grantland to 538 will, I hope, be pleased to know that Effectively Wild lives on. And it's thanks to all of you, if not for your support on Patreon. I probably would not have been able to make the case that Effectively Wild should continue, even though I will be hosting another baseball podcast. So those of you who have supported us thus far really did save the show in this case. So I will be doing the Ringer MLB podcast maybe a couple times a week, at least during the regular season. And so we will cut back on Effectively Wild a little bit. It won't quite be a daily podcast, but of course we've called it a daily podcast all this time, even though sometimes we've moved to fewer shows during the offseason or while we were working with the Stompers. So we will still find time to do shows as long as you all keep listening and keep supporting us on Patreon. I'm excited to start over there. I hope you'll all read and listen to my work for The Ringer, but I'm happy to say that Effectively Wild doesn't have to die. So we'll probably cut back a little bit, but we will still be doing a regular show. It better only be a little bit, Benby, because I love doing this every day. (laughs) I know. That is one thing I've always known about you. I really, really want to do a daily podcast. Yeah, 929. So we are, remember when we had KG on at 100 and (laughs) and he agreed to come on at 1000? That seems... That seemed impossible. Like that was a that was a joke. That was a joke. We're only like three months away. Yeah. And if you had told me that I'd be working for three different places in the interim, I probably would have said that we wouldn't have made it to a thousand, but I am hopeful that we will. So glad that we can keep this thing going. It's apparently unkillable. And uh, again, thanks to all of you for enabling us to continue to do it. And we hope that that will remain the case. So thanks. And I look forward to doing things over there and continuing to do things here. All right. So we are doing an email show today. Anything you want to talk about before we do? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I I do have something I'm going to talk about. And this is going to be one of those things where I'm going to get really wound up and seem angry. And, uh, And I don't like it when this happens. I feel like people misunderstand me a little bit because I very rarely this angry, but this just gets me so wound up, Ben. Okay. All right. <sighs> okay. The Astros Twitter account yesterday tweeted, probably the best video to ever hit the internet. Okay. There's a ball player doing a funny thing. <laughs> Are your hopes oh, high? Yes. <laughs> I know the one you speak of. <laughs> so this is, I'm going to just repeat, probably the best video to ever hit the internet. This video was... A one-minute snip of Jose Altuve and other Astros half-singing, 
half lip syncing to the Backstreet Boys, I Want It That Way. Now, th- this is not just a eh video. Like, it's not just that there's really nothing happening in this video. It's that one of the best videos to ever hit the internet is literally this song being lip sung to. Okay? Lip synced? Lip synced? Lip synced to. <laughs> yes. Okay? It is just staggering that just 11 years after Wei Wei and Huang Yixin of the Backdoor Boys revolutionized YouTube and the internet with a pitch-perfect lip-syncing of the Backstreet Boys' I Want It That Way, that this half-hearted, not-that-interesting, completely unoriginal video of Jose Altuve kind of singing to Backstreet Boys, maybe ironic, not really that important, would be called probably the best video to ever hit the internet. It would be as if the Astros took a video of Evan Gaddis saying... It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I forget what comes after. And tweeted it and said, probably the best literature mankind has ever created. It is not (laughs) that impressive. This is really heartbreaking. However, what kills me about this video and what really sinks the shot is that in the background, somebody is wearing Zubas. Zubas pants. The tacky pants from the 1990s that the Oakland A's turned into a meme four years ago are still in clubhouses and they're just wearing Zubas like that's still cool. You guys, this has got to stop. Make up your own thing. It's not hard. Everybody will applaud you for it. It doesn't have to be awesome. We want to see your rough drafts. It's okay. Just do your own thing and we will celebrate you. Oh, the unoriginality is bad, but the soft bigotry of low expectations <laughs> that the public has for baseball players trying to be funny kills me. Ben, it kills me. Oh, I'm going to have to I, hang on. I got to I got to resettle myself. Never reeks of garlic. Never <laughs> reeks of garlic. Never reeks of Okay, I'm good. I'm happy again. Never reeks of garlic. <laughs> Yeah, so I had a similar reaction when I saw this video, even with the buzzfeedization of internet headlines that conditions you to expect things to be disappointing because not everything can be the greatest thing ever, and yet so many things are described that way. Even with that, I was really <laughs> I was really let down by this because just I figured there was going to be some element of choreography or some kind of production value like this was going to be a a big team activity like like when uh Muninori Kawasaki did karaoke and sang I don't want to miss a thing to the Cubs in spring training this year I'm sure that was described by someone as the greatest thing ever and I watched that and I was amused it was not the greatest thing ever but I enjoyed it as much as I expect to enjoy any video I click on that says it's the greatest thing ever this just uh, really fell short of the branding. Yeah, and, and they spent six tweets on this. <laughs> I mean, I get it because it's Altuve and people will click on anything Altuve is in and Altuve is great. Obviously, people liked it, right? Other than us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, Ben! Oh, I just, I'm just looking through the replies here and somebody, I, I assumed I was the only one who noticed the uh, the Zuba's crime. But somebody else also replied, 
What are those pants Marwin had on? Some tiger print? Like Will Ferrell in Kicking and Screaming? Super cool reference, by the way. Houston Astros replied, Zubas. And then fire emoji. Uh. <laughs> yeah, well, that's Twitter. That is Twitter. I mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm with you. I understand. There will be a backlash, but I, I get it. All right. It was just a disappointing showing. <laughs> Yeah, let's 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 email it up. <laughs> okay, I was gonna ask you on a more somber note whether you feel as if your greatest fears about Clayton Kershaw are finally coming true. I call uh, yeah, I called this like four years ago. <laughs> You've been convinced that Clayton Kershaw is about to break forever, not because he had really shown any sign of breaking, but I guess what because he was just too good for this earth or something, and so. Something had to happen to him, and now he is uh, not feeling great following his simulated game, and his timeline is uncertain. Yeah, it was specifically that he had like a foot injury three years ago in spring training, and I thought that that would cascade, and I've just been waiting for it to, to go off. But I, uh, yeah, I was just talking about this with my dad, who's a Giants fan, and uh, I'm strong in favor of rooting for injuries generally if they if they help your team there are exceptions as i've laid out on the show before i think uh-huh. when we had brisby on if it's if you're pre particularly if you're pre-arb if you're pre-free agency then i don't root for free agent uh, for uh, for injuries for you and i don't root for anything that's gonna like end your career certainly or like i don't root for like like for instance i would never root for anybody to have a punctured spleen but you know it like if you if pull a hamstring miss six weeks I think it's perfectly acceptable for a, a player to root for for their team's uh, number five hitter to pull a hamstring. I, I I I know a lot of people find that monstrous, and it might be. But Kershaw, who of course for a you know for a Giants fan like my dad, uh, would be the the you know the biggest trophy uh, that you could uh, that you could hunt. And I don't think he and I I certainly feel no happiness about Clayton Kershaw missing even a single inning. So Kershaw Kershaw's loss is a loss for for all the sport and i hope he comes back it's weird it's hard to know what it is i have no idea what it is what's going on yeah it's too bad it's times like these when you really just want to watch jose altuve lip sync to backstreet boys to make it all okay again <sighs> never reeks of garlic <laughs> all right questions we will start with a question from asa beal patreon supporter who says i make the following claim Speaking of baseball players attempting to be funny, the practice of giving a player the silent treatment when he returns to the dugout after his first career home run has jumped the shark. Agree or disagree? I feel like this used to happen sometimes and it was funny. I feel like this now happens every time without fail and it's 100% unfunny. What's the perfect mix of non-celebration troll jobs and actual celebrations that will produce the funniest moments? Asked another way, are jokes better when there's a lot of setup before the punchline or a little setup before the punchline? When do y'all remember first seeing the non-celebration troll job? Did this happen to Joe DiMaggio? I don't actually mind the repeat of this particular joke. I, I feel like that repeating a joke over and over does sort of inspire some good comedy because you have to really force yourself to be original. So, like, you know, I've seen various twists on it that were kind of funny. I, I definitely remember thinking that's funny the first time I saw the guy come in and give imaginary high fives to his imaginary teammates. And at the Stompers, we everybody ran to the bullpen, so we were not just 
giving the silent treatment, but we were not even there. Uh, and so I don't mind that. It, I mean, the problem is that we see it every time. They show us every time on TV. And look, when we're competing for entertainment with people who are watching their first baseball game, it's gonna there's going to be a lot of unoriginality. And uh, the broadcast has to assume that not everybody knows that this has been done a million times. And so they show it and there's a sense of whimsy. Uh, and that can be a little bit grating. And so, I, yeah, I kind of roll my eyes a little bit when I see it. But its heart is in the right place. And to me, it's more the announcers pretending to be more amused than they are. That probably bothers me. Yeah, I really like the idea of it. And I like it when it works. I'm not sure whether it works anymore. And by work, I mean, you know, actually, like, confuse the player, mystify the player, surprise the player. Because that's the whole idea of it, is that the player's going to come back expecting to be greeted like a conquering hero, and then no one's there, and uh, he wonders what he did wrong and what's going on. And now I imagine that just never happens anymore, because it's obligatory and everyone expects it. And so that kind of defeats the whole purpose. I don't hate it, but... I don't really get anything out of it if that's the case. I'm pretty sure that most of these guys have had this stunt pulled on them at least at least twice in their yeah. careers. Probably their first, certainly, the, I would say certainly their first professional home run this was done to them. And if they went to college, their first college home run. And there are other opportunities here and there where it might have been done. So this is not even, not not just not a surprise or original. This is not even a first for them, probably. Yeah, right. But you're still okay with it. It's it's fine. It's fine. I look again. I don't mind ball players not being funny. Most of us are not. I mind pretending they are. That's it. <laughs> okay. All right. Question from Maximilian, who also is a Patreon supporter. He says, Sam has mentioned that while we live in a world where every pitch thrown at any level of organized baseball has worth only insofar as it advances the current or future chances of an MLB franchise winning a World Series, this was not always the case, that independent leagues and even barnstorming tours were once considered an end in and of themselves. What might happen if two young transcendent stars, let's call them Hrout and Tarper, decided after their initial MLB service time was up to sign 10-year contracts with the Sugarland Skeeters and the Somerset Patriots. Could this have a bird magic effect on the whole Atlantic League? Would fans and other stars follow? I mean, at this point, baseball is so big that, like, the the scale of the sport itself is so big that I just don't think that there's, even if it worked, I don't think there's the infrastructure in place. I mean, the Sugarland Skeeters are an extremely successful independent league team. They draw 6,500 fans a game. I don't know how you scale up. There aren't more than one 50,000-seat baseball-ready stadiums in most cities. So, um, you know, it just seems like even if you really wanted it to happen, you would it, it kind of would be impossible. Like, I don't know. Trout and Harper, I don't think, would certainly be enough, although it would be really fun to watch them put up stats against bad competition. But, uh, like, how many of the, how many of the top, Let's say 75 ball players. If you picked at random, so you're not like, uh, so, you know, well, I'll just, re- I'll just ask the question. How many of the top 75 players in baseball would have to join this competing league for it to have a chance of surviving, you know, 10 years profitably? 
Well, I mean, profitably is impossible because <laughs> I okay. don't know how they would pay Forget, these players yeah. to begin with. But yeah, but that that it could compete with that it could do to Major League Baseball what the American League did to the National League and basically yeah. reach reach uh, you know equality. Or maybe even get to like federal league level where they were actually enticing some stars to leave and it was considered a threat even though it didn't last that long. Well, the federal league though is exactly, I mean, the federal league is a big flop though. Like that's, that's the point. You can't do it. Even, yeah. even a hundred years ago, you couldn't do it. And that was before, you know, we had $8 billion TV contracts, before we had organizations with, you know, 60 scouts, uh, and seven, le- seven levels of play and, you know, the stadium and all that, like that was a pretty simple time and they couldn't do it. So now it just seems just the scale is unfathomable, right? Yeah. I mean, you can't even really say like you have some mad billionaire take over a team because that's not even enough money anymore. That's like Bryce Harper's contract would be half of the billionaire's fortune unless they're a many times over billionaire. So It would be hard to make it work in any way, but as for if it somehow did happen, how many would it take to actually get people to watch? I think uh, you'd probably need like 20 of the top 75 sprinkled around the league. I think it would need to be much higher than that. I I think it would have to be greater than half because you don't, even if you have the players, you don't have the uniforms, you don't have the history, you don't have the rooting interest. Uh, you don't have, like, you don't know, like, look, if I want to go to a Giants game right now, it's really easy for me because I've been to a bunch of Giants games. I know where to park. I know the train schedule. I know where, I know which, uh, I know the little place down in the left field corner that has the best hot dogs with the grilled onions on it. And you'd have to relearn all that stuff from scratch. It just doesn't seem worth it just so that, you know, you can see Ryan Zimmerman play. Like, I just wouldn't do it. Like, I think it could hurt MLB. If you had, you know, immeasurable immeasurable billions and you wanted to try this, you could probably take a big chunk out of MLB's business. I just don't know that that business would go anywhere. Like, I don't know that that business would go to you. I think it might go to the NBA. Yeah, maybe so. I don't know. If uh, Rich Hill was on the team, you would watch? Eh. <laughs> okay. You know that the 30 teams, however many teams they had, say they had 18 teams, you know that the 18 team names would be garbage team names too. Like they, nobody names a team well anymore. Takes a long time before they seem any less than absurd. And you know if there was a league with 18 new teams, they would name them all horribly and we would just mock their uniforms. (laughs) Right. All right. Next question from Amos Blackman who is actually also a Patreon supporter. I swear I'm not even picking out Patreon people, but they just happen to be. And his question is somewhat related to the book. He says, this question occurred to me before I started reading The Only Rules It Has to Work. So I'm going to ask it anyway, even though the book is pretty clearly going to get into this. It's pretty clear now that even managers of quote-unquote smart teams make decisions that violate pretty basic sabermetric insights. The Dodgers don't shift, Escobar leads off for the Royals, most clubs follow closer orthodoxy, etc. In most cases, there's an explanation, Kershaw doesn't like pitching in front of the shift, Esky magic is part of the Royals' chemistry, high-performance relievers demand saves and get paid for them. Good managers undoubtedly provide real value through chemistry and leader of men qualities, even if we don't know how to quantify them yet. My question is... Should front offices try to tell managers which suboptimal strategies to use in establishing their leadership? For example, lineup construction usually has a very small impact. 
so it seems like a good area to allow managers free reign to keep players happy, build chemistry, etc. But maybe the Dodgers would be better served by working to bring Kershaw on board with shifting, which as a leader himself, he would influence the entire staff. Which areas should managers be given the most free reign or the least, or would such guidance be self-defeating because these power because the power of these decisions to build on the field unity comes in part because they reject the analysts' input. I it's intriguing, it's an interesting question, but I do think that I I had a shift in the way that I viewed power or politics or whatever when we did the Stompers. I used to think, okay, life is about compromise and you know, you you take a little here because it's more important to you and you give up a little there because it's less important to you. And I sort of came to feel that, in fact, anytime you give up, you you simply lose your chances of getting the next thing. Like that it's all about uh, establishing a precedent for you getting what you want. And that's not great. That's not fun. I don't really like that world. But I think if you let your players see the manager overruling you, for instance, they would be more resistant the next time you overruled your manager. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. We we lived it. Yeah, I mean, it's weird because like again, I don't I don't really like this. This is not really my sort of personality, but you just kind of have to project that you're the powerful one. And like most of the world already knows this. Like a lot of people are listening to me say this and they're like, "Yeah, no, of course. It's like every prison movie." where they say that thing that they say in every prison movie about finding the toughest guy in the yard. And <laughs> and like this is not surprising to a lot of people. Winning begets winning, power begets power. But like I I, I think almost if you're the front office and you are like if you're the front office and you're worried about your players resisting you, then I think you have to demonstrate strength. I think it's better to not worry about them resisting you. You have to figure out a way that you're not in you're not in an antagonistic relationship with your players. You need to figure out a way to sort of disguise your influence, perhaps, uh, so that you're not constantly in a position of, of conflict. But if you are in a position of conflict, which this question sort of implies, I don't think that um, meeting in the middle and assuming that they're going to see your good intentions or whatever is going gonna, is gonna to work. Yep, I think that's right. And, of course, the best of all worlds is to avoid the problems in the first place by being very clear about what your expectations are going in and making sure that you are working with someone who, you know, mostly is on the same page, not completely in lockstep with you about everything, but at least knows how to talk to you and is willing to take input and have these discussions so you can save yourself a whole lot of trouble and conflict and fights in the recruiting or the interviewing process. But I agree, if you do get into a situation like that, it kind of helps you in the long run to put your foot down. All right. Play index? Play index. All right. This one goes a couple of different directions. People might have seen during the All-Star game a graphic that caught my eye, might have caught your eye. It was that Mike Trout on the first pitch this year is hitting 619. <laughs> That's a big old number. So, yeah. um, so I, of course, wanted to see where this ranks, historically speaking. Trout only has 22 plate appearances right now, so presumably this will regress, but whatever. I wanted to see if he's chasing any sort of record. So I looked up since 1913, although really since 1988, because it's how far back this goes. Since 1988, 
who has the highest uh, batting average on ball on uh, on first pitches. And I set a minimum of 30 plate appearances. And uh, I will tell you this just because I've I've told you how much amusement I get that whatever wherever you set the minimum on these small sample splits, the highest is always a person who is right at the minimum. And in fact, the highest ever is Scott Van Slyke at 621 who had exactly 30 plate appearances. I set the minimum at 30. First place <laughs> had 30. It's, it is yeah. creepy how it happened. Not 31, 30. Josh Rutledge is number three, also at 30. This is not a stat that means anything. If you just look at the leaderboard, uh, the leaderboard right now is Scott Van Slyke, Jim Edmonds, Josh Rutledge, Tyler Houston, Carlton Fisk, Jack Cust, Edgar Martinez, Larry Walker, Gary Reedus, and Will Cordero. And so this is not that interesting. It just does not tell you that a player is good. Um, there's a very small percentage of their plate appearances, a selected percentage, a selected uh, portion of those plate appearances. Nonetheless, Mike Trout is sort of in pursuit of the record for the highest batting average ever on the first pitch of an at-bat. But number five on this list caught my interest because while lots, while all these guys hit between you know 550 and, and, and 620, one player's overall performance actually stood out quite a bit. And that's Carlton Fisk, who in his 31 plate appearances that ended on the first pitch in 1988, he hit 586, but he slugged 1621, which is way higher than everybody else on here. He had 29 at-bats that ended on the first pitch. He also had two hit-by-pitches, so that's 31 plate appearances, but 29 at-bats, so 29 times he put the ball in play, and he hit nine home runs <laughs> in those 29. Nine <laughs> home runs. So he had a 22-34 OPS, which is a, I don't, you have, if you're familiar with baseball reference, you'll know what I'm talking about, but they have something called the split OPS plus, which is how you, your your OPS plus relative to the league as a whole in that specific split. And so uh, it's basically OPS plus, except instead of comparing against the league average on, on everything, it's just in that same split. So Carlton Fisk had a split OPS plus of 441. His OPS of 2,234 was uh, you know 441% of what the league average is. And this got me wondering whether this was the highest split OPS plus I could find if anybody has ever had a higher one in their split than this so I searched I feel like I might have done this once but I, I don't I can't I couldn't remember so I just did it again just in case I searched every split to see if I could find any split OPS plus higher than 441 I had a few rules I ignored this is only batting stats I ignored pitchers batting because the denominator is too low and uh, it creates weirdness, and um, I just didn't consider that important because uh, pitchers aren't really hitters. I took out things that are completely irrelevant to hitting. So, for instance, Greg Jeffries uh, had like a 450 split OPS plus as a second baseman one year, but like it doesn't matter if you're a second baseman or a third baseman. You go up there trying to do the same thing. It is not like most other splits where you're looking at the context of hitting. So I, I threw out those, and I threw out three ball count stats because intentional walks screw them up too much. Like Rafael Palmero, for instance, one time had a year where he had 32 plate appearances that ended on 3-0 and he had a 5,000 OPS. But of course, he walked 31 times and hit one home run. It's like not interesting. 
That's just not, three O counts not. So I, I threw those out. Okay. So then I went through and I looked at every other split to see if I could find a split OPS plus higher than, what was our number? 441. All right. So the first person I found that beats it, Todd Helton had a year where he had a split OPS plus of 535 on 0-2 counts. And that year, in 34 plate appearances, he hit 471 with an 853 slugging percentage on 0-2. That's not after 0-2. That is on 0-2. That is 34 really bad mistakes that pitchers made to him. Uh, and he is our he is our new leader, 535, okay? Yep. All right. Next, I found somebody who beats him. That is Ted Williams, who in September of 1957 had a 632, 788, 1526 slugging percentage line in, I think, 32 plate appearances. That is the highest, that is the greatest month anybody has ever had. Uh, and uh, and that is a split OPS plus of, uh, I don't think I wrote it down. doesn't matter. He's not the <laughs> champion. <laughs> All right. Uh, next up, beating him out is... Albert Pujols, who had a 579 split OPS plus in 2010 with two outs and a runner on second. <laughs> that specific, <laughs> that specific instance, two outs with a runner on second. He hit 636, 867, 1636. And uh, there's a little bit of the intentional walk in here, but not a lot. He still hit 636 with a 1600 slugging percentage. That is, again, by the way, in exactly 30 plate appearances. And uh, that is a split OPS plus of 579. I could not find anything higher than Albert Poole's split OPS plus of 579 for any split except for one. And that's why I like this one. There is <laughs> one person who's ever done it, and it is Nuke Logan. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> Nuke Logan... In 38 plate appearances on balls hit in the infield, hit 297 with a 297 on base percentage and a 297 slugging percentage in 2006. That doesn't sound very good, but think about hitting 297 on balls in the infield. That's really good. Most sure. guys hit about 100 or less on balls in the infield. Nuke Logan's split OPS plus that year for balls in the infield in 38 plate appearances was 807 way above Albert Pools. You could argue that this is a denominator problem. You could also argue that I shouldn't include splits where the result itself is a result of the thing you're measuring. Like it sort of feels weird that like this feels different than the other, but whatever. Nook Logan, 807. That's the record. Mike <laughs> Trout's, by the way, not anywhere close. Mike Trout's split OPS plus is like 279. But even more notable, Mike Trout has been a pretty poor hitter in his career on the first pitch. Last year, and most guys kill the ball on the first pitch because, A, you can't strike out, so if you swing and miss, it doesn't go on your ledger. B, you're swinging because it's a pitch you loved. You're um, you're not swinging at the pitch uh, in the corner on OO. So almost everybody crushes the ball on OO. Mike Trout, last year, 192 with a 722 OPS. Year before, 292 with a 619 OPS. The year before, 314 with a 783 OPS. He's been one of the worst hitters in baseball relative to his uh, overall performance 
on first pitches this year. So this is a, a, on first pitches in his career. So this is brand new, totally random, completely insignificant, but uh, it does give you a, uh, a, I guess, a record watch that you could pay attention to in the second half. All right. Well, I kind of hope Nuke Logan keeps the distinction because Mike Trout has enough going for him. Yep. All right. You can conduct your own split search with the Baseball Reference Play Index. Use the coupon code BP when you subscribe to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. All right. Question from Tony. Given the increased focus on contracts and value, do you think a very bad contract could negatively impact a player's chance at the Hall of Fame when voters will be the sort of folks that were raised on quantitative analysis and value? See, for example, Albert Pujols. He was great, and he's still good, but the last 10 years of his career will almost certainly be seen as a disappointing affair. Hmm. Interesting question. Uh, the There are two kind of ways of thinking about this. One is, would it subconsciously affect them? If Albert Pujols feels like... A, like Albert Pujols, by the way, is going to make the Hall of Fame. So he's not a perfect case for this, because there's no doubt he's going to make the Hall of Fame on right. the first ballot. Uh, but a player who um, is as disappointing and who's more of a borderline candidate than Pools, who's as disappointing for 10 years, psychologically, could matter. Now, the, of course, the first name you think of who this would apply to is Ken Griffey Jr., who just set the all-time record for highest, <laughs> highest percentage of Hall of Fame votes received. So the psychological argument doesn't seem yeah. to make much sense. Would anybody use it literally... I think there's a real resistance to using contract status as a way of assessing players in any way. Uh, like I know Jeff Sullivan has written uh, well about whether we should look at contract status for MVP. If a player is uh, produced seven war at $500,000 salary, he's clearly more valuable, technically speaking, to his team than a player who produces seven war and costs $28 million. It's just kind of undeniable. And yet... Nobody thinks about that, and when Jeff writes about it, I feel like there's always pushback. There's always like people who really resist that uh, that sentiment hard, um, and there's kind of a negative response to it. So I don't think that there's any imminent threat threat threat's the wrong word, but threat of people thinking about it that way. Yeah, I don't think so either. I I mean, obviously, if you have a bad end to your career and you're not a valuable player for reasons that have nothing to do with your contract that could and should hurt your hall of fame case and it has in many individual cases guys who just you know tanked early and didn't keep up their hall of fame beginning to the career and they didn't end up in the hall of fame so that happens but you don't really get to the point where your contract is seen as an albatross unless you're not a good player. And so that's already, I think, accounting for it. If you're not a good player and you're making $20 million or you're not a good player and you're going year to year with you know $2 million a year contracts or something, I don't think that affects how you are perceived. If anything, the fact that you're still making $20 million reminds people that you used to be good enough to earn that much money. So maybe it's almost the opposite, but I agree don't think anyone will really hold this against anyone. You could hold it against Pujols and it doesn't matter because he was the best hitter in baseball for many years and one of the best hitters of the century. And so that's, 
enough to get him in, even if he winds up his career with almost a decade of disappointment. But I don't think it matters that he's on a big contract or not. It matters to the Angels, but I don't think it could and I don't think it really should matter to Hall of Fame voters because the Hall of Fame is about how good a baseball player you were. It's not really about whether you were worth more to your team. Yeah, good point. Well said. You know what's interesting is that the Sports Illustrated annual survey of players where they ask who is the most overrated player in baseball, and it's almost always whoever's overpaid. You know, like it was A-Rod for a while or whatever. But it's someone who's overpaid. And the guy who's overpaid usually ends up in a way being underrated. Like, not always. Like, Ryan Howard was actually every bit as bad as analysts said he was and people feared he was. But a lot of times, like, a guy like, you know, Jason Worth or I remember Vernon Wells was this before he went to the Angels and actually became that bad. You just get so obsessed with their contract that you... Uh, that they become punchlines or they become albatrosses while they're still producing pretty good major league performances. And uh, so in a weird way, those guys end up being underrated oftentimes. Yeah. All right. Last question from Luis. If you were the sort of person who gets tattoos and you wanted to get a tattoo of your favorite player, when would be the second best time to do it? The best time being never. Take Mookie Betts. (laughs) I love Mookie Betts. It would be so cool in retrospect to have had that much faith in a player so early. His future was so uncertain at that point, there was a non-zero chance that he'd never amount to much, and then I'd be stuck with some obscure name on my body for the rest of my life. If I go with Adrian Beltre, I'm pretty late to the party, and I'm risking very little. If I go with Griffey, again, it's very safe, but it's also made with the knowledge of his sharp decline. So, if you're forced to get a tattoo of any player you like, how would you make how would you make your choice? A bold bet on a young player, a long dead legend, a safe pick of a future Hall of Famer still in or near his prime, an underrated sentimental favorite, an obscure former bench guy or middle reliever, anyone named Mike Trout. Well, if it's somebody who's famous, like if for some reason your favorite player, like my favorite players growing up were always guys who were terrible. Like I, I was looking at a note from my camp counselor when I was eight. He had, he wrote a note to my parents that like talked about like how I'd done at camp, right? And he said like, Sam has great spirit and loves to root for the underdog. He's probably the only person in the world whose favorite baseball player is a rookie backup infielder. And at the time, my favorite player was Greg Litton. So much so that I insisted that everybody call me Greg Litton. <laughs> and so if you're if you're purposefully choosing guys like that, uh, you could probably just do whatever you want because whether they turn out good or bad uh, is is irrelevant. But I'm assuming you're going to choose somebody good uh, or you hope to choose somebody good. And in that case, you it simply has to, they have to be dead. They have to be dead, partly because I'm a huge believer in the this, the no statues of living people uh, philosophy that he mentions. But also, it's creepy. It's creepy to have a, a living person tattooed on your body, in my opinion. Uh, like what, if you run it, say you... Say you say you pick Mookie Betts, right? And say Mookie Betts is great and everything's working great. And then one day you're in Las Vegas and you walk into an elevator and Mookie Betts is in that elevator. Are you showing him the tattoo? 
No, you're not. <laughs> you're never showing him that tattoo. It is a you are hiding that. You are hoping you don't wear shorts that day because that tattoo is really embarrassing when you come face to face with a person, the adult person whose face is tattooed on your adult body. So I think the day after he dies is the right time to do it. And uh, and I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a tattooed person, but I think that would be a, a great tattoo. The other problem is you don't get any credit for being the first to get the tattoo because no one knows when you got it. I mean, you know, maybe a few people do, but if you show up to the game once the guy's – I mean, if you show up to the game and you have the tattoo and he's obscure, then no one even knows who it is. And if he's a star, then no one says, oh, we salute you for being the first to have faith in this player. They just said, oh, you got a tattoo of the most famous player. So you don't even get credit for being the first on the bandwagon. So I don't think there's really any value to that. So, uh, yeah, if I were going to go with someone, which I, I wouldn't, but if I would, then probably the sentimental favorite, probably the... Greg Litton would be a decent choice just because then you could explain why Greg Litton and maybe there's a story behind that. But otherwise, I don't know. Buy a jersey. A jersey's a good way to hedge your bets. If I were going to get a tattoo, a baseball tattoo, I would probably get a tattoo that was a little bit less obvious and a little less awkward. My tattoo would be, it would just say 362 slash... 609 slash 812. <laughs> All right. Today, Greg Litton is a successful motivational speaker. No kidding. Yeah, apparently, oh. according to Baseball Reference Bullpen. Oh, wow. Great. I probably, I probably knew that. I think I've probably Googled him before. <laughs> uh, you got, you got, did you get my, you got my tattoo? You get There's it? There's a bond step. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Just wanted to make sure. It's weird. We ben, People can't tell this, but right now, since I've been on uh, mom and dad's Wi-Fi for the last week, I'm about 11 seconds behind him. <laughs> and so we're having, we're having conversations, you know, f- like with each other by like, you know, tapping on prison bars, basically. <laughs> uh, so every time I say something, there's just this 11 moments of terror that Ben's not gonna laugh. And it's very, it's very stressful. <laughs> oh, he laughed at that one. Good. Yeah. And I'm trying to anticipate when you'll stop talking 11 seconds in advance so I can start responding. Yeah. Go back to the last week of episodes and listen to how masterfully Ben put them together. <laughs> All right. So that is it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. And again, a big thank you to all of you who have helped us preserve the podcast and who I hope will continue to help us preserve the podcast. Today's five listeners who have already pledged their support are Jeffrey Young, Birgal O'Neill, Duncan Leitenyi, Taylor Mukaria, and Christian Thomas. Thank you. You can buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, at theonlyruleisithastowork.com. If you've read it, please leave us a review at Amazon and Goodreads. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild, as well as to the Ringer MLB show on iTunes. Send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or by messaging us through Patreon. I'll be doing a Ringer show with Michael Bauman tomorrow, so you can look out for that. And then Sam and I will most likely be back on Friday with another episode of Effectively Wild. So we will talk to you soon. 